As we turn our heart's attention now to God's word, let's pray, asking God by his spirit to teach us and illumine his word to our minds and our hearts this morning. We come before you totally dependent upon you, Father, asking that your spirit would be our teacher, that as much as possible I may get out of the way, and we hold on to the promise of the scriptures that your word never returns to you empty or void, but will always succeed in what you have set out and purposed for it to accomplish. So whatever that might be in our lives, we ask that you would illumine your living and active word and act upon us in and through that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, or the words are also printed in your bulletin. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We are looking, the text before us this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. And remembering what we said earlier, Mark stated right out his purpose in his Gospel. He said the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is looking to basically... Uh, lay out before us his main purpose to say here's what the gospel is its subject is Jesus Christ he's the son of God and in and throughout this writing this narrative he is explaining for us and laying out for us exactly what that gospel is and we said early on that the reason we need that is that we need to have a real Jesus as contrasted to a Jesus that we make up see it's not enough for us to say well I have a relationship with Jesus if it's a Jesus that is made in your image that you create, you only have a relationship at that point with what you've created. That's not a real Jesus who can transform you, not a real Jesus who can change you, not a real Jesus who can comfort you in trouble or challenge you when you need correcting. We need the real Jesus, and that's what the gospel gives us. Jesus has just finished when he arrived on the scene. He began proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, when he said, the time is at hand, the kingdom of, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, respond, repent, and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. Thereafter, when he called his first followers, his first basically circle of friends around him, challenging and calling them to follow him as he lays out the gospel of the kingdom, now he's demonstrating exactly what that is all about, demonstrating his authority as king of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verse 21 says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. 
That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. I have a thesis statement, and that thesis statement is we all have a problem with authority. Whether that's individuals, a church, or a society, or a culture at large. Listen to some of the poets of our society, of our culture. One said, I fight authority. Authority always wins. I fight authority. Authority always wins. I've been doing it since I was a young kid, and I come out grinning. I fight authority. Authority always wins. So I call up my preacher. I say, give me strength for round five. He said, you don't need no strength. You need to grow up, son. I said, growing up leads to growing old and then to dying, and dying to me don't sound like all that much fun. That's the great poet John Cougar Mellencamp, for those of you who didn't know. (laughs) Or how about this, one of my favorite poets of our culture. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Anybody want to sing along with me? No dark sarcasm in the classroom. Teachers, leave those kids alone. Pink Floyd has no problem with authority, right? Or for those of you who think, oh, he's just picking on rock music. How about old Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra, who said, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, I've traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than this, I did it. We all know that, but... It's not quite right, is it? Or if you want me to leave the realm of music, how about our movies world? Does anybody remember the movie Forrest Gump? Yeah, Forrest Gump, this this came out, what, 20 years ago or so? Forrest Gump going through the scene in the movie where Lieutenant Dan, his presiding officer in the war, Lieutenant Dan was paralyzed, lost his legs and everything, and there they are shrimping on the boat. Here comes Hurricane Carmen coming in. And there's Lieutenant Dan on the top of the mast screaming at God, is that all you got? You call this a storm? Come on, it's time for a showdown. You and me, I'm right here. Come and get me. Now what do these examples have in common? We have a problem with authority. And authority is where the Christian life and authority is where the kingdom of God begins. Because the Christian life begins with the very simple assertion, the very simple proposition, God is God and we're not. From whatever angle, whatever perspective we look at it, whether as individuals, whether as a church, whether as an individual congregation, whether as the universal church, or whether... We look at it from society or culture at large, we have a problem with authority. One of my favorite writers is a social critic, his name's Os Guinness. And one of the reasons I love Os Guinness, he's a Christian, but he was born in China, the child of medical missionaries. Then he went to school, went to college in England, moved to the United States in 1984. And so someone who has been both outside the United States and inside the United States, I think he has a very... Uh, objective, so to speak, observation 
of United States culture. Now, he wrote this in a book over 20 years ago, but I think it's even certainly equally, if not more, relevant today. He says, after a great sea change in American life over the past few decades, and he's writing in the 90s, so he's referring to the decades of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, he says the republic is approaching the climax of a generation-long crisis of cultural authority at stake in the thousand and one changes and controversies that comprise this period of turbulence are the principles and patterns of authority by which personal lives and public life will be ordered. Mark has said his stated purpose is for, to give us the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom of God. No kingdom, no gospel. When Jesus began, and Mark told us, he says he's proclaiming the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And as one commentator put it, the kingdom of God means coming under Jesus' authority in every area of our lives. He writes, after all, when you enter a king's kingdom, every part of you comes in. If you recall the passage we looked at before our missions weekend, Jesus' calling of his first followers, his first disciples, one writer put it, when Jesus calls, two men leave their vocation as fishermen. So Jesus' authority extends to our work life. He must have priority in that area. Then in verses 19 and 20, when Jesus calls, two men leave their father and friends. So his authority extends to our family life. He must have priority in that area area as well. So what is your attitude? What is your response to authority? How do you deal with it? How do you respond? The kingdom of God has arrived. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom is here. He's launched it. He's inaugurated it. And verses 21 to 34, the passage we're looking at show Jesus' miracles, healings, teaching, and what that does is demonstrate the claim of his authority. He said the kingdom is here, the king is here, now he's proving it. Now he's demonstrating it. Now he is showing it. And in this text we learn three things about how exactly Jesus demonstrates his authority. What he wants us to learn about his authority. We learn three things. We learn the uniqueness of Jesus' authority. We learn the comprehensiveness of Jesus' authority. And then we learn that we must respond to Jesus' authority. First of all, the uniqueness of Jesus' authority. And I've asked, a challenge, I've asked a kind of question and posed it as a challenge, do we have a problem with authority? And we may say, no, we don't. We come under Jesus' authority. We submit to his sovereignty. We submit to his Lord. Time out for a second. It can be very subtle. Let me just put it this way. Have you ever been in a Bible study? And, or a small group, maybe a community group at Spruce Creek Presbyterian Church. Hmm, who knows? But you've heard it said, or maybe even said it yourself, what this means to me. Uh-oh. Whose authority are you coming in when all of a sudden you're going, what this means to me, rather than this is what the text says? See, are we coming under the authority of God's word? Or what about when we pick and choose our favorite scriptures or doctrines rather than coming under the entirety of this book, Genesis through Revelation? So, for example, we may love 
the verses that say, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Now, that's in there. We should love that verse. But do we love the verse that says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or we may love the verse that says, for God so loved the world. Do we love the verse that says, forgive as the Lord forgave you and love even your enemies? Do we come under the entirety of the authority of God and his word? Our own Westminster Confession that we use as a confession of faith in its opening chapter says this about the scriptures. It says, the scriptures, all of which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life and the authority of the Holy Scriptures for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Look with me at verse 21 in the uniqueness of Jesus' teaching. It says, and they went into Capernaum. Capernaum is... No, we like to think of towns and cities, but this is probably more appropriately a village. Had about a population of 10,000 on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fairly significant place because it had an east-west trade route, and there was even a detachment of Roman soldiers there. So here they are. They're traveling. They're going around. It says, on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now the scribes, the teachers of the law, the legal scholars, most of them of the sect of the Pharisees. In this particular, now there's going to be plenty of conflict to come with them. That conflict hasn't started yet. This is not a slam on the scribes just yet. What Mark is doing in narrating this is pointing out the uniqueness of Jesus' teaching. The uniqueness of his authority. Robert Stein, who's one of the commentators I read on the Gospel of Mark, says Jesus' preaching, teaching, healing, and casting out of demons are all part of Jesus' teaching ministry. He says the unity, the content of Jesus' teaching ministry involving the arrival of the kingdom of God includes the manifestation of the kingdom's arrival in his healing miracles and his exorcism. The word authority, Tim Keller makes the point, he says the literal word for authority means out of the original stuff. It has the same root word as the word author, meaning that Jesus taught about life with original rather than derived authority. His listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author, and it left them dumbfounded. It left them amazed and astonished. His authority is unique because he is the author. It's not like any of our authority. No matter what, no matter how much I stand up here, any authority I have as a teacher, any authority the elders have as a teacher is derived. It comes from something else. Jesus and Jesus alone is utterly unique because he's the author of it. He's the original Commentators make the point that teachers, even the prophets of the Old Testament, would often begin their teaching with, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, I say to you. He says, this is something neither the scribes or the teachers of the law, nor even the Old Testament prophets ever had the audacity to do. And Tim Keller again puts it well when he says, what Jesus is saying here is, I take away your right to judge my teaching. No one has the authority to reject any part of my teaching, nor 
is there any standard for evaluation of teaching any higher than myself? Jesus' teaching was without analogy and without historical precedent. His teaching is utterly unique. And one of the things just in the way of application that this teaches us is that deep down we all need a king. We are not created to live in a democracy. We all need a king. The nation of Israel, the book of Judges, describes as well what happens when the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, do not have a king. Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That ought to be a scary thought. Doesn't say everyone did immoral. Doesn't say everyone did evil. Without a king, though, it says everyone did what made sense to them. Think about the words, what's right in their own eyes. It did what was practical to them, what made sense to them. You can have a lot of what seems utterly, utterly logical and reasonable, but if it's not under the authority and kingship of Jesus Christ, it's just as wrong, sinful, and immoral as anything else. This is the challenge of authority. When we don't look at the implication of Jesus' teaching or the nuances of God's word, are we bringing our intellectual life under the authority of the scriptures? Do you come under Jesus' kingly authority or do you do what is right, what makes sense in your own eyes? Secondly, look with me at the comprehensiveness of Jesus' authority. His authority is utterly comprehensive. And here you have, first of all, in verses 23 to 28, you have an encounter, a spiritual encounter between Jesus and the demonic world. Now, I know our contemporary culture would say, well, throw that, that, Jeff, you're getting a little weird now. Throw that out. And we have to be very careful because the scriptures are very clear about the demonic world and the spiritual world. And I think, to be honest, I think C.S. Lewis's advice is the best advice when it comes to dealing with that. C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters says there are two errors that you can have about the demonic, the spiritual world. One is to disbelieve and ignore them altogether and say they're not true. The other is to go, there's a devil under every rock. Look out, everything's the demon. And C.S. Lewis, I think, rightly says both are erroneous. You have to recognize the reality of the demonic world, the reality of the spiritual world, and recognize Jesus' authority. They're under the sovereignty, the preeminence, and the authority of God in Jesus Christ. And verses 23 to 28 describe that, an encounter. A man with an unclean spirit comes up to him. And you have this encounter, this spiritual encounter. And we'll see this as we go through the gospel. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes, he silences. The literal word there is he muzzles. And you see this kind of with this confrontation, with a shriek, with a convulsion, he comes out of the man. And then in verse 29, you have the authority of Jesus again, but this time over the physical world. And this time, notice the contrast. Now we see Jesus at the home of Simon Peter and Andrew. And Peter's mother-in-law is lying ill with a fever. And here, you just as much see Jesus' authority. But look at what the text says and the difference. Rather than a stern rebuke, what does he do? He takes her by the hand. Notice the tenderness and the compassion of the physical touch. And he lifts her up. 
and then he heals her. And in the domestic simplicity, she goes and serves them a meal. What you see here and what we learn here is that Jesus' kingship, Jesus' authority extends to every realm of life. His kingship is utterly comprehensive. It's not like the philosophical error of dualism that says only pay attention to the spiritual world, the material world. God doesn't like that. No, God cares about the physical creation. He cares about the earth. He cares about our bodies. He cares about our health. And his kingship extends to everything. One of my favorite theologians is Abraham Kuyper. And I love when Abraham Kuyper says there is not one square inch over the universe of which Jesus does not declare, I am Lord. Jesus' authority is comprehensive. And we need to remember, let's apply this again. Let's look at this. This is part of our bringing our intellectual life, our thinking, our minds under the authority of God's word rather than thinking what is right in our own eyes. Now, what is the gospel presenting here is the gospel in terms of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel presents Jesus as bringing the kingdom of God, inaugurating the kingdom of God. And Tim Keller draws out the implications of this when he reminds us this enables us to see in Jesus' ministry of exorcism a paradigm for how the kingdom works. Here we begin to see how Jesus' kingdom is more than simply my individual obedience to his will. Jesus comes into my life not simply as a rule giver, but also as a liberator and a healer. He doesn't bring simply rules, but a new realm of his kingly healing power. See, we need to recognize that as the scriptures teach throughout, we are never neutral. If we do not have Jesus as our king and master, the only alternative is to have some other false god, some other false king, some other false realm, some other enslaving power, coming over us as a master. In Ephesians chapter 6, so you've got to realize the relationship between Paul and his letters and the Gospels, because they're never in contradiction. What Paul is doing is basically taking the teaching of Jesus, and he applies it to our lives and congregations. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul speaks of our spiritual battles not being against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the principalities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. You know what he's saying? He's saying the battles we face, the temptations we face, are not simply against ourselves, other people. They're not this early. They're against the powers of evil that are coming against us. And that means anything we make an ultimate value, anything we make more important than Jesus, becomes a master and begins to exercise enslaving power over us. Now, this is very challenging because this is, the teaching of the scripture here is not simply the bad things we make ultimate values over us, but anything. See, I'm looking out, and you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing very nice people. We look nice. Y'all dressed up really well this morning. You look sharp. Not a lot, I'm not looking and seeing a lot of direct immorality, but I wonder how many of us make our families more important than Jesus, make our kids more important than Jesus, make our work more important than Jesus, 
make our health more important than Jesus. Even make our doctrine more important than Jesus. Make our politics more important than Jesus. Is that dangerous to say in an election cycle? Make our being right more important than Jesus. Now, am I speaking against family? Am I speaking against kids? Am I speaking against health? Am I speaking against work? Am I speaking against doctrine? Let me say unequivocally, absolutely not. What I'm speaking about is if we make any of those things a value more important than Jesus. They become an enslaving power over us. We're being enslaved by the forces of darkness. One of the things this passage teaches us is that Jesus is coming as a healer and a liberator. And he wants us to be fully flourishing as humans redeemed in the image of God. As Tim Keller again so rightly reminds us, he says, This passage teaches us that when Jesus comes into our lives and becomes the supreme Lord, his kingdom begins... It's an already, not yet. It begins, it inaugurates. We're on a journey, we're on a path, but it begins to heal us of the denial, begins to heal our family life, begins to liberate us from the anxiety we feel, feel over money and work. He becomes the ultimate Savior and therefore the ultimate Lord and King. The question is, does he have ultimate authority in our lives or is anything else more important than him? Which leads to our final point. How do we respond? It's pretty interesting the number of responses you see throughout this passage. Take the demons, for example. They know who Jesus is and they get it right. Doesn't mean they have saving faith. But they know, look at what verse 24 says. They ask, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The answer to that is yes. First John chapter 3 says the Son of God came to destroy the devil's work. And then they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That phrase is used one more time in the Gospels, and it's used by Peter in John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. Jesus has just challenged his followers, challenged, he said, hard, things like I'm the bread of life to his disciples. And many are leaving, many are fleeing. And Jesus says to his disciples, do you guys want to go also? Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to back down on the message. He just says, fine, there's the door. You want to leave also? And Peter goes, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are, here's the same phrase, the Holy One of God. The demons respond. How about the people? Verse 27, the people respond with amazement. And the Greek has the sense of they intensely question among themselves. There's no neutrality here. It's not yet belief. It's not yet confession. It's not yet following Jesus. But they're, they're certainly not taking Jesus lightly. They're not going, they're going, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And then verses 28 and 33, his fame is spreading, his reputation, his greatness. And I love, I think, even with a little bit of hyperbole, the whole city, doesn't mean all 10,000 necessarily, but they're coming. Jesus' greatness and Jesus' fame, something is going on because Jesus, the king, not simply a teacher, but a teacher with authority, 
Not simply information, but one who is moving upon their very lives. So the question is, how do you respond? And again, let's take this in context. Andrew reminded us and taught us very well last week that when you read a narrative like this, you have to pay attention to what comes before it and what comes after it. And so let's remember what this said in context. Because in context, what did Jesus do? He called his first followers, and he said, come follow me. In other words, throughout the entirety of this chapter, the response is not simply, do you believe? Remember, the demons believed. They knew who Jesus was. The question is, do you follow Jesus? Saving faith is a following faith. That's not perfection. The object has to be Jesus, but it's a walking with Jesus faith. Do you walk with Jesus? The question of discipleship is, do you follow Jesus? Tim Keller put it this way, rightly says, says, Jesus is saying, follow me because I'm the king you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything, yet I've humbled myself for you. I've humbled myself even to obedience by death, and not just any death, but death on a cross. I died on the cross when you didn't have the right beliefs. I died on the cross when you didn't have the right behavior. And because I've brought you news, not advice, because I'm your true love, your true life, your true beauty, your true king, follow me. Let me put it very simply. Why do we not submit to the authority of Jesus? because we're not enraptured by him. One of the speakers who was here for the missions weekend rightly quoted John Piper, who said, you praise what you love. We are all loving beings. We all, fundamentally, what makes us human is that we love. And you're always loving something. Doesn't mean necessarily bad things. You're always loving. See, love is not simply an emotion or a feeling. Love is a fundamental direction, affection, movement of your heart. And you are always, and you will always praise what you love. The question is, do you love Jesus or do you love anything else? And we don't love Jesus because we're really not enthralled with him. We're really not gripped by him. We're really not captured by him. There are other things more beautiful to us than Jesus Other things more useful to us than Jesus. And the only way to be enthralled by Jesus is to be overwhelmed at the wonder of his love, that he would humble himself all the way to death, even death on a cross. We're not overwhelmed by his love because we're not overwhelmed by our need for his love. The more you would be overwhelmed by your utter desperation for his love, the more you would see his humbling himself and loving you. And the more you would be overwhelmed by his love. And in turn, what does 1 John say? We love because he first loved us. Do we have a problem with authority? Do we rightly see the authority of Jesus? Father, continue to teach us. This is just... I said at the beginning, this is the beginning of the Christian life. This is Jesus beginning to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Continue to show us who Jesus is.
the type of authority he wields, the kind of authority that would lead him to voluntarily, of his own volition, lay down his life as a shepherd for the sheep. I pray, Father, that you would continue to show us Jesus in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.